everybody. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pekulski. As always, another incredible guest for you today. We frame this podcast around how to live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. And today's conversation is going to be integral in understanding how to thrive in life, specifically how to optimize your brain. We're looking into the ever-fascinating world of nootropics, ultimately supplements that can enhance brain function or brain performance. Now, I will not say that I advocate everything being talked about in this podcast. Uh, I'm not a doctor, so I suggest you always check with your physician or medical professional before you take any supplements, period, especially the ones we mentioned in this podcast. But today's guest, Lucas Owen, joins me, and he's got an incredible wealth of knowledge when it comes to optimizing brain function, ultimately looking to just tweak slight aspects of brain optimization. So it was a really, really eye-opening conversation. Lucas has got an incredible wealth of knowledge in the area of nutrition and supplements, and he does a really great job on his YouTube channel as well as Instagram. And I'm sure he would really appreciate you guys giving him a follow after you listen to this incredible podcast brought to you by a brand new sponsor to the show, brought to you just for you guys, You Can, U-C-A-N Starch. You've heard me talk about this in the past when I was both doing my keto experiment and when I was training at a high level. One of my favorite go-to supplements to extend out long-term performance, I'll tell you what that means in a minute, is You Can Super Starch. So they call this a super starch because it's actually a starch that doesn't create any type of insulin response meaning I can take it on a ketogenic diet. My blood glucose goes up just a little bit, but it doesn't actually elicit an insulin response. So why is that useful? Well, oftentimes a ketogenic diet, it's an insulin response that will kick you out of the ketogenic uh, state or ultimately that we're trying to avoid if, if perhaps um, metabolic flexibility is the goal or de- improve insulin, insulin sensitivity is the goal. I mentioned on a recent podcast that I had done an experiment for about 16 weeks with UCAN and I was kind of doing a, a N of one experiment where I was in a ketogenic diet and it added in about 70 grams of UCAN starch during every workout. I started at about maybe five or 10 minutes into the workout and I would start consuming it. And I noticed my performance to be significantly um, better sustained over time. So my training partner at the time, Danny Vega, wasn't taking UCAN to start and I was, and I would notice his training you know, probably a third of the way through the workout starts to fall off. And whereas mine extended all the way through the workout and I was able to get significantly more high quality work. And the, the exclusive difference was you can, and I have become a big fan of the product, big fan of the company. And if you guys look and want to see the actual mission as to why the company was started, it's really, really fascinating. You can see it on their website, head over to you can.co, ucan.co slash muscle intelligence to get hooked up with 20% off this incredible super starch. Now, I know some people are afraid of carbohydrates. If you're in the keto space or if you're in some way you're afraid of carbohydrate, this is the supplement you would want to take if you're afraid of carbohydrates. You may not want to take things that give you huge insulin spikes because those things have been associated with different effects altogether, but something to help you sustain performance over time and not get those you know, potentially um, undesirable effects of huge amounts of insulin spikes, which may be things like hypoglycemia which is very, very common for people. So head over to youcan.co slash muscle intelligence. Use the code muscle to get hooked up with 20% off. And now enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm sitting here with Lucas Owen in Melbourne, Australia. How are you, my friend? Doing well, BPAC. Thanks for having me on the show, man. Or maybe I should call you mate. I'm going to throw that in. All all my Australian friends, I I tend to take that on. I tend to bring it back to North America and call everyone mate. And then I have to remember, like, I'm always aware of where everyone's from. So some people in in America are like, what, mate? Or, you know, they they don't get the the lingo. 
nah, it's fine. You can get away with that with me. I'm, I call a lot of my friends, you know, mates all the time. So yeah, very right. familiar. Or some other Aussie slang that shouldn't be mentioned on the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. Cool, man. So dudes, thank, thank you for joining us. You got a great Instagram following. You got, you're, you're pushing a great message. And the reason we brought you on today is to talk all about brain health, brain optimization through the realm of nutrition, through the realm of supplementation. And this is an area really close to my heart. So I don't know if you know my story, man, but I, I, at least the story I tell myself is I grew up with what I'll call a broken brain. So when I was a kid, I slept really poorly um, just because I, I didn't understand best practices. I often sleep with the TV on, I sleep with the lights on, uh, I ate really terrible food. I was always under high amounts of stress because of my situation at home. And uh, I just kind of attached to like, I'm just dumb. I just, my brain didn't work. And it was hard for me to remember information. It was hard for me to do well in school. And uh, then as soon as I started to optimize, you know, what we'll call brain nutrition, which wasn't until I was maybe early twenties, um, did I start to actually see a benefit and see that, gosh, my brain actually works really well. I was just kind of functioning uh, suboptimally. And so I took such a massive interest in everything that there is to optimize brain. Uh, and it seems like there hadn't been a huge number of people out there looking at brain health, looking at brain optimization from a nutrition and supplementation perspective. Obviously, we have kind of the big movers like Dr. Amen um, and some other you know people who have been on the podcast as well. But uh, I'm super grateful to have you join us. Yeah, awesome. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, man. So let's start off with maybe a little bit about yourself and how you got into being interested in the, this topic of brain health. Yeah, I guess um, really my journey started uh, actually playing professional soccer. I was always really fascinated with optimizing human performance. I mean, my dad's a my dad's a pharmacist, so I was sort of already introduced to like um, various um, vitamins and minerals, and I had some experience working in in my dad's pharmacy from a very young age. And then, yeah, I just sort of got captivated by um, what I can do to basically take control of my performance and take control of the way that I'm performing on the soccer field. And that's when I sort of um, fell down the rabbit hole of researching various um, performance enhancing supplements and things like that to basically just improve my overall ability to read the gameplay. And I found one compound early on, which is a classic, and I know much of your audience will be familiar with acetyl L-carnitine. Yep. Um, fell in love with that from a very young age and then, you know, just started delving into what else was out there. And then basically just from there, I um, transitioned over into my naturopathy degree, which um, literally gr- uh, finished my last class yesterday. Congrats. Um, yeah. So just been, ever since then, really just been researching in my spare time. Like I literally, first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is check my PubMed notifications. Like the first thing I do, I've got certain keywords set for that. Um, and I've just got a whole, I've literally got thousands of really epic studies, which I, you know, I'm looking forward to sharing with the world. Great. So, uh, you know, as I said, I've probably just like you, uh, been a self-experimenter for gosh, 15 years, maybe. And uh, probably tried most, if not all, uh, brain optimization supplements. Uh, some worked really well. Some feel like they worked well in the moment and then crushed you afterwards. Um, so I'm very interested to dive into this now. So just kind of starting high level, um, you know, there, there's, I, I believe there's some basic foundational practices of health that should always precede supplementation. So people think <laughs> like, hey, man, put this high octane fuel in your in your car and you're going to go faster. Like, no, no, no. We have to make sure that the engine parts are strong first. So I always want to start off with like, okay, what are some basic nutrition practices people should be adhering to, to optimize brain function and performance before ever adding any supplement? Mm, it's a good point. I think um, 
a really great place to start is to assess the impact of various nutrients on specific aspects of brain function. For example, when we're looking at um, specific B vitamins, we know that these act as cofactors to produce the neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, acetylcholine, histamine, um, orexin, things like that. So I guess from a very high level, we need to look at um, vitamins and minerals as the absolute prerequisites before we try and um, optimize performance down downstream. Because really, if somebody doesn't have um, all of those in place, for example, let's look at iron. And, you know, it's over a, 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 a billion people are, are iron deficient. Um, and so with iron, I think the critical point to understand here is that if somebody dives into specific supplements like tyrosine or other dopamine precursors, they're not going to get a good effect from that supplement because iron is actually the key um, a cofactor in the enzyme tyrosine hydroxylase, which is the enzyme that converts the tyrosine from our foods into L-dopa and then subsequently dopamine. So I guess really looking at it from a very basic principle is that all nutrients are required for optimal brain function. Um, it's, it, however, it's true that certain nutrients will have a, a more significant impact on um, various aspects of brain function, such as you know omega-3s, iron, um, vitamin B1, um, B6. So yeah, there's really, there's a lot to explore there. Yeah, so I think the the you know general uh, takeaway from that is um, you know it seems like in the world today everyone lives in extremes, right? Everyone's like I'm I'm a, I'm a carnivore, I'm a vegan, I'm a I'm fasting 24 hours a day, whatever it is. But the, the biggest takeaway is like okay, learn what your body needs for you based on your activity level, based on your stress level, based on your genetics, and then fill in the gaps, right? So there's definitely some objective testing you can do. Um, and, but the general kind of rule is like, just eat a balanced diet. And I know that, that sounds uh, like it goes against what everyone wants to hear, right? Everyone's, everyone wants to jump into camp and like, I'm all about this. Well, maybe your body doesn't need that. Maybe your body needs something completely different and, and it works for some people. And those are the people you follow on Instagram, but it may not work for you. So learning to be objective about it is massive. Do you have any kind of objective processes or objective testing measures that you like to implement for people? Like as far as best, I know you're in Australia, so maybe different than everywhere else in the world. But uh, do you have any best practices? Like, hey, this is how I I know what I what I need and what I don't need. Yeah, it's a good point. I think well, with various minerals and and vitamins, um, really the best the best point of call would be to you know undergo a specific blood tests for that nutrient or um, B vitamin. Unfortunately, some of the really like novel or rare ones like vitamin B one, B two. Some of those are difficult to access for people. Um, you know, a regular doctor doesn't usually test for those um, nutrients. And I think one point to really emphasize here is that everyone's talking about MTHFR, you know, the, the polymorphism, mm -hmm. you know, folic acid, in, inability to convert folic acid into the active form methylfolate. But there's another one that I think not enough people are talking about is um, the ability to convert the inactive form of vitamin B1 into its active form. And that there is um, what I believe to be a really critical cofactor in, in, in producing um, adequate uh, neurotransmitters and specifically the ability to use carbohydrates and glucose as a fuel source in the brain. So like, for example, anytime somebody ingests carbohydrates, um, they're automatically increasing the requirement for vitamin B1. So like 
a great example is that white rice um, berry berry where um, excess intake of certain you know grains and, and white rice can lower one's b1 status and they can that can sort of lead to a, a whole myriad of, of symptoms and um, just from my exper- experiments alone uh, I started mega dosing you know very high dose uh, vitamin b1 and just from that alone, not that I had a vitamin B1 deficiency, but I was actually going and pushing, pushing the limits and actually, you know, trying to bump up a specific pathway, um, increasing Krebs cycle, ATP synthesis. What I noticed from that was a massive improvement in energy. And if you look at the research studies, there's literally, there's one study that looks at how there's a complete amelioration of fatigue in chronic fatigue uh, patients just from high dose vitamin B1. Interesting. I think, yeah, there's some really cool research around that. So uh, when you say um, high dose, I'm curious what the dose is and what the source is. Like, is it is a specific form of B1? Yeah. So with um, with B1, majority of the research is conducted on thiamine HCL, which is just the regular one you'd see in supplements. That's what I'm looking at. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, dosage ranges there. For, you know, some of the megadose studies were like 800 to 1200 milligrams orally. Um, and there's also studies um, using intravenous administration, but there's there's another form of B1 um, called TTFD. Um, it's a I mentioned it on um, Ben Greenfield's podcast. Um, it's it's basically it's already activated, so it's like an act the active form of vitamin B1. <clears throat> and a lot of people that you know use this particular compound, they notice a massive increase in energy. Um, improvements in mental clarity and also, you know, a reduction in fatigue. And, and that dose is between 50 to 100 milligrams. I've, I've never heard. So they're calling it Thiamax. Is that the. Yeah. 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 I'm looking it up here. I'm, I've never heard of it. So, oh, so it's thiamine, tetrahydro, furful, yeah. disulfide. <laughs> uh, yeah. TTFT. Got it. Uh, interesting, man. So I, th- I think, sorry, did you say what, what dose you were trying to run like over and above typical? Because I, d- I certainly don't want to advocate this. This is not medical advice. This isn't, we're not suggesting you do this, but uh, I'm curious what you did. So I began with 100 milligrams per day. Yep. And I just titrated that up all the way up to about 800 milligrams. Okay. Um, and I looked, at all the re- I looked at all the research papers in terms of um, toxicity and, and safety protocols and things like that. I was aware of, you know, some of the potential side effects such as um, an excess in acetylcholine. So I did develop a few like muscle twitches, which is a clear sign of it, uh, excess acetylcholine. Interesting. Um, but yeah, just in general, like I just felt like it was a unique response. So do you know what, what mechanistically is happening there? Because that's very curious to me. Like I, I like the idea of having elevated acetylcholine, not too elevated, obviously, but so B1 is going to drive up acetylcholine. Yeah, I mean, B1 is known to stimulate pa- uh, potassium evoked acetylcholine release. So it's mm-hmm. like a, so that's that's one unique pathway. And then also <clears throat> another benefit of high dose B1, in, in particular for like bodybuilders and athletes, is because um, B1 does a really great job at reducing lactate and ammonia levels mm-hmm. in the brain. And so that's very relevant to us, you know, trainers, like people training. The buildup of lactate and ammonia is what causes that brain fog and grogginess feeling the day after they do a you know heavy weight session. Hmm. Um, and how long did you stay at eight hundred milligrams? 
Um, I continued that for about a week and then I dropped it all the way back down to 50, 50 to 100 milligrams as like a maintenance. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting experiment. I'd be curious to see if more research comes out. If you have any research on that, if you could send it and we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes, that'd be great. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So, you know, kind of coming back to, to first principles, um, you know, B vitamins are these, these absolute necessities when it comes to optimizing brain health. And if there's any other ones that stand out to you, because as you say, we're all, a lot of people are focusing exclusively just on, um, you know, methylfolate, but if there's anything else that stands out to you that the audience should pay attention to with respect to brain health. Um, yeah. And a specific type of B12, um, the adenosyl cobalamin, I find that that particular form is really beneficial for mitochondrial function. And in general, just a lot of um, athletes that I've worked with, I've implemented, you know, high-dose um, adenosyl cobalamin. And the general general feedback has been like just improve, improvement in energy and, and even um, sort of um, muscular contractions, like the ability to contract your muscle, which is, you know, another nice little bonus. Very, very cool. Um, so there's a great resource that I often kind of refer back to. I don't know if you're familiar with Nootropics Expert. That's one that I go to all the time. And um, the guy's been on the podcast before. I believe his name is Daniel Tommen. And uh, he's got a great, great uh, extensive list of all the, the nootropics and kind of what's necessary for, um, you know, the, these these precursors almost like we're speaking of, the things that need to um, kind of uh, precede uh, any type of nootropic supplementation. And one that he talks a lot about is solbutamine. And I know mm. that's a B vitamin. It's like B7 or something, is it not? B- solbutamine is just two B1 molecules but bound together. Oh, is so it? Just, yeah, it's a double thiamine. Um, so, okay. And sol- solbutamine is heavily, you know, a lot of nootropic advocates really, really um, rate solbutamine in terms of its um, dopaminergic properties. But I think, honestly, like, from the initial like beta testers of this TTFD, people are saying that it outperforms the soul beauty mean in terms of like mental clarity, which is really cool. Very cool. Okay, that's good to know. So I know there's a lot of, um, like you said, there's a lot of people pushing soul beauty mean, and I tried it. I didn't see a huge benefit, but I'll definitely experiment with the TTFD a little bit. So um, again, pulling this back because I want to stay with, um, you know, I, I know that the human tendency is to go, give me the high octane fuel. What makes me go faster? But my brain always goes, no, let's start with the foundational things to keep your brain healthy first. So <clears throat> when I look at brain health, I'm, I'm thinking maybe in like a systems level, we're looking, okay, we have to optimize mitochondrial function in the brain. We want to optimize brain function or sorry, a blood flow into the brain. We want to decrease inflammation. Those are kind of three uh, maybe pillars. So mitochondrial function for energy production, um, blood flow and inflammation. So are there any particular supplements that you suggest in those three areas before we get into the things that are going to start pushing these uh, high performance pathways? Yeah. So you mean specific foods to sort of address those or supplements or supplements? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess we can sort of look at one constituent found within blueberries, um, which we know blueberries have amazing neuroprotective um, you know, they stimulate neuroplasticity. They also improve working memory in, in young adults. Um, you see Dr. Rhonda Patrick sharing some cool research around blueberries. Um, but there's one particular constituent from blueberries called pterostilbene. Um, it's spelled P-T-E-R-O-S-T-I-L-B-E-N-E, pterostilbene. Um, and that one there has like a, a unique ability to cross the blood-brain barrier. So that's, that's one 
that's often a downfall with many of these flavonoids is that when they're conducting research, they're like, right, well, can it cross the blood-brain barrier? Because we want it's one thing for it to be effective in like in in an in, in vitro sort of cell model, but for it to actually cross the human blood-brain barrier, that's often a a um a difficulty for these compounds. So terastilbene does have the ability to do that, um, and it actually inhibits um, an enzyme called uh, it's FAAH, and that enzyme actually breaks down anandamide. And anandamide is the bliss, you know, you f- the the actual a chemical that makes one feel bliss and is associated with like the runner's high. So I think terastilbene is a, a unique um, flavonoid to be looking closely at. Definitely. And so I'm always curious about um, efficacy between supplementation and food, right? So uh, I'm a, I've been a huge advocate of blueberries and any dark berries for quite a long time. And it's one of my kind of 10 staple foods that I include in my diet. Um, but I'm curious if you've seen any data comparing just the terastilbene supplement versus the blueberries, because often kind of like cannabis, right? So if you isolate THC or CBD, it's not necessarily the same as taking cannabis because of the entourage effect. I'm curious of a similar effect with blueberries. It's a great point. I was actually about to, you know, I was about to expand upon that myself is that is it just the terastilbene exerting the, you know, positive effect on brain function or is it the actual entourage effect like you mentioned? And I honestly, I think it's coming from a naturopathic background and, you know, the fact that my dad's a pharmacist, I'm sort of torn between that reductionist versus holistic. So Mm. I'm sort of smack bang in the middle. So I I sort of, I still acknowledge both sides. Yeah. Um, But with the, like with something like terastilbene and even another example would be resveratrol um, found in red wine. I think what we see is that um, the actual, the whole package, the way that Mother Nature created the actual food source is always going to trump the supplement in terms of its lack of side effects. Whereas when we use an isolated compound, it's more likely to push a particular parameter very strongly in one direction, but at the expense of pushing another parameter in a negative direction, if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's interesting thought, right? So I'll give you the flip side of that. So what if uh, someone really needs, um, gosh, call it any, any B vitamin, call it vitamin C and they're like, okay, well, we know that there's some vitamin, call, I don't know, just call it calcium or vitamin C in spinach. And, um, well, great. You should eat spinach because it has this, this micronutrient in it, but it also comes with it a whole slew of other things that are negative, right? So oxalates that we know are going to cause this negative effect. And so would it be then better to take the isolated vitamin or, or cofactor or mineral rather than the food, right? So each side of that could kind of be argued, um, cause some, I mean, certainly vegetables, fruits tend to have less negative effects. Certainly vegetables <coughs> have a lot of no negative effects. So I'm curious your, your stance on that. Yeah, it, it is a good point. Um, the, the one thing that comes to my mind there is um, the classic example of L-theanine found from green tea. Like there are so many people that respond really well to the isolated L-theanine. Yeah. Um, you know, combining it with caffeine, that's, a, that's, that's typically, it's a beginner's nootropic stack, you know, combining 200 milligrams of theanine with 100 milligrams of caffeine. Yeah. Um, and in that scenario, it's sort of, we do see a, you know, a, a superior effect of L-theanine over just consuming sort of green tea in that scenario or matcha. Um, so I think, honestly, I think it comes back down to how 
individuality and also how one responds to the two, you know, it yeah. comes back yeah. to, you know, that awareness. Yeah. Um, my brain always just comes to, um, you know, uh, it's so hard to objectify things. And, and I think the foundation needs to be just make sure you're getting what your body needs at a base level. And then, so the test that I use to speak, you know, just kind of come back to that point is called an organic acid test. I don't know if you guys have that in Australia, um, but just like, hey, let's look at all these metabolic pathways and see what your body's efficient in. And let's cover all of those bases first. Because sometimes people are pushing pathways that are just unnecessary, right? Like, does your body need more B vitamins? Does your body need more whatever cofactors? Like, well, we can actually, I think with the relative accuracy, again, those tests are always, I, I understand the subjective nature of those tests. They may not be 100% accurate, but it's the best we've got now. Um, so having some objective data and then going, okay, now that I've covered all my bases, now I'm going to experiment with something new, right? And I think most people don't realize how deficient they are in so many things, right? So taking something like a polyphenol or, a, a, you know, terosilbene, um, for some people may not feel, may not benefit them at all, or maybe it'll push a pathway and then have them crash. So I just yeah. want to kind of bring, bring the listener's attention to this reality of like, it's not always a good thing to push your foot on the gas pedal unless you know that your body's being replenished on the back end. Yeah, for sure. I think there's definitely a, um, a time and place for various um, protocols. Yeah. And like, say for example, you know, it, that's, where, that's where the whole principle of like cosmetic neurology, which is something that I really love to explore around like deploying certain protocols to suit your needs for, t- for particular occasions or particular um, contexts or, or environments where like, Let's say somebody had an up, up and coming exam. Perhaps we perhaps we do need to um, ramp up one particular pathway, like the acetylcholine pathway, using high dose B one. But we know that you know once the exam's over, once the event's over, then we go back and we uh, abstain from that compound. You know, mm. that's interesting, um, and I wonder what retention would look like. And so you know. I know that over the last two to three years, I've been experimenting with a lot of these things and I find my retention to, to undulate almost it go like, sometimes it's incredible. And my ability to recall information is like savant like, and other times I feel like my brain is broken and I'm always, I'm trying to kind of nail down what that uh, kind of common ground is. Like, how do I, re- how do I replicate that? Uh, you know, the best practice to keep me in that savant level memory and savant level recall again, that may be an embellishment, but Sometimes it feels like I can just put pieces together. I'm like, gosh, I don't even know where that came from. Other times, like sometimes I feel like I forget my name. So <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting um, balance. But that's why I'm trying to get down to these first principles. So you mentioned acetylcholine, uh, Lucas, and I want to want to dive into that because that to me is one that most people don't know about that everyone should know about. And we've talked about it in the podcast before. We'd love to have you kind of break that down and uh, what it does, how it works, and then maybe how we can optimize it. Yeah, sure. So. Acetylcholine um, is actually the very first neurotransmitter ever dis- discovered. Um, and basically what we need to understand about, you know, its, its particular functions are that it is not only active in the brain, but also very much important for skeletal muscle contractions um, and actually initiating the um, signal to send, you know, signal to from the brain to the muscle to actually facilitate a muscle contraction. So, Oftentimes, we'll see acetylcholine mentioned in the context of, you know, um, eat eggs as they're rich in choline, so it's a choline donor. Eat liver as that's also a very rich source of choline. Um, But then obviously we have like a range of um, other acetylcholine donors or stimulators such as um, acetyl-L-carnitine, 
CDP choline, choline by tartrate, um, alpha GPC, and then we have like funky forms of like vitamin B5 that can stimulate um, acetylcholine. And then we have like compounds that can slow down the breakdown or, or inhibit the breakdown of acetylcholine, such as acetylcholine esterase inhibitors like huperzine A or galantamine. So I think a great way to understand acetylcholine is, is the neurotransmitter you want to increase in the context of learning, focus, and memory. So that's like if you're trying to optimize that aspect of cognition, I think an important component of that uh, of your protocol will need to address, you know, optimizing acetylcholine. There's an interesting uh, reality. Maybe you could tell me more about this. So most people that I put on acetylcholine love it and see an uptick. Some people feel it it crushes their energy. They're like, oh, you know, it it, it made me tired. And I think it has to do with the MTHFR um, uh, allele because the girl. The only commonality I could find was the girl, uh, or, or most people have some some issues with MTHFR. There's so many of those uh, SNPs, and some people have some, um, you know, call it heterozygous uh, you know, deficiencies. But this girl, I think, had really strong MTHFR pathways, and or two girls had very strong MTHFR pathways, and there, and that was the only commonality I saw behind why they didn't feel good on acetylcholine. Is, do you have any, can you shed some light on that for us? Yeah, I mean, from those that don't really respond well to the, the choline donors or the choline supplements, they're usually um, people that are already choline dominant because we do have individuals that are already choline dominant. For example, why would it make them feel, why would it make them feel worse? They got like, she got, they got two of them got t- more tired. And I was like, interesting. So I was looking at the DNA. I was like, this is the commonality that I see. To be honest, it's probably due to the fact that it's um, if we're providing a choline donor and they've got a, a polymorphism in the ability to convert a folic acid to methylfolate, it may be due to the fact that um, maybe you know ramping up acetylation downstream in the liver and that's affecting maybe the, the way the liver utilizes folic acid. I'm not. I'm actually not really sure. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that definitely. Again, I don't know. It was just an interesting observation because. Choline is one of these things that I kind of ubiquitously thought was like, hey, everyone could benefit from small amounts of this. I mean, we get it in eggs, we get it in, in your know, liver. Um, and so if you're eating those foods, you're probably going to have an uptick. And so most people I, I've given it to just like, wow, this stuff is great. And it's not stimulating. So um, transparently, I'm, I'm well acquainted with the guy who owns the patent on alpha GPC. So at some point, he'll, he sent me a kilo of the powder. And he goes, here, try this experiment with it. So I was using huge amounts of alpha, G, alpha GPC. And he goes, hey, I want you to try, I think I was using like three grams before bed. Um, and he goes, try it before bed because it apparently really bumps up growth hormone. I was like, okay, I'll, pl- I'll play with that. So I don't know that I ever measured uh, growth hormone objectively, but my kind of gauge was, does it affect my sleep? Because we know that growth hormone is technically correlated with, with better sleep rhythms. And I did see a significant uptake over the span of three weeks. I took it for three weeks uh, at about three grams before bed. So that's interesting, right? So most people associate it with something that's like stimulating. So just to point out to listen, it's not stimulating at all. It's just uh, focusing maybe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Any, any insight as to why that would work so well before bed? I mean, do you know of the mechanism, how, how it would improve growth hormone if it does? Um, I'm not, I'm not too sure about how it's actually stimulating um, growth hormone, but I do know that um, acetylcholine does play a role in um, uh, supporting REM sleep. So perhaps maybe, you know, the rationale there was to improve um, REM sleep, but even um, I'm wondering if the, 
the fact that there's some research that shows that CDP-choline alpha-GPC can um, stimulate GnRH secretion. So maybe yeah. um, acting as a, you know, a little nudge there. But then also I think I've seen research that may suggest that it can increase prolactin as well at very high doses. Interesting. Um, yeah. That would be, that's bad news. So, so for, for the people out there who don't understand prolactin, um, you know, you can correct me if you understand this more than I do. My understanding of it is it's almost works, um, it can work antagonistically to dopamine. So it's, it's kind of a, a downstream of testosterone and testosterone dopamine obviously are, are, are positively correlated. And as your prolactin increases, t- your testosterone and dopamine tend to be on uh, coming down. Does that sound about accurate? Yeah, yeah, and I'd love to. I'd love to explore more around the relationship there between yeah. like. So with um, there's one of my favorite doctors, Doctor Ray Pete. I don't know if you've um seen. And everyone in Australia loves Ray Pete. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's he's on the he's on the west coast of um of America, right? He's like Seattle or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And every, every time I go to Australia or Dubai, someone's telling me about Ray Pete. No, I've never heard anyone in America talk about him. But uh, everyone over there is like, this guy's amazing. So I'm going to do some research into him. He sounds like he's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, the reason why I bring him up is because like, he informed me a lot around prolactin um, and specifically the links between excess serotonin and elevated prolactin. And we know that um, for your listeners, we'll sort of explain, you know, we'll expand upon what you said before about um, dopamine suppresses prolactin. That's a fact. Um, and dopamine stimulates uh, luteinizing hormone, so it stimulates testosterone. But the other side of the coin is that um, dopamine and serotonin are usually sort of, they have sort of antagonistic effects on, like on each other. Yep. So usually with compounds that increase uh, serotonin, such as um, tryptophan or 5-HTP or eating turkey, kiwi fruit or other things, bana- uh, bananas, usually these compounds... Um, those that stimulate serotonin also tend to raise prolactin. And generally speaking, prolactin, serotonin, cortisol, aldosterone, all of these actually, and uh, estrogen, generally speaking, are stress hormones. They're actually uh, adaptate, uh, sort of adaptive mechanisms to cope with stress. For example, even being in a very dark environment, you know, that, that in and of itself is, is stressful um, and that will increase serotonin and also um, uh, prolactin as well. So I think there's a really important um, relationship there. Oh, that's great. That's super helpful. So I don't know if you've listened to Dr. Huberman's podcast. He's got an amazing podcast. Uh, recently did one on hormones where he actually dives into kind of mechanistically what's going on there when, you know, maybe uh, after sex or uh, when people are, um, you know, going through phases of, of like kind of testosterone undulation, uh, prolactin tends to be kind of the, the, you know, what happens after, again, so mechanistically, what is prolactin doing? I, I know, I understand like the, the lactation part, but in a man, what is it, what is happening there? Well, funnily enough, they're actually discovering that um, prolactin is actually required for a man to um, feel that sense of relief and um, gratification. <laughs> follow, follow that's, kind of, that's kind of funny considering what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. that's literally like, that's how it's described. But the right. thing is, um, you know, we'll see like various um, protocols and things like that to, to lower prolactin through like cabagolin, bromocryptine. But in my opinion, there's, there's other compounds out there um, that are very much unexplored and untapped that can do that sustainably without any sort of like long-term issues. Yeah. So 
B6 and zinc, right? So uh, Huberman was mentioning B6 and zinc are some of the best ways to to suppress prolactin. Yeah, and then there's also um, there's a particular nootropic. Uh, it's called bromantane. Have you heard of that one? Mm. Um, this one here is like a. It's actually the very first synthetic adaptogen ever developed. Mm. Um, it was by, you know developed by the Russian millet, uh, the Russian. Uh, scientists and basically they wanted to find a compound that could help their soldiers and their cosmonauts withstand um, mental and physical stress. So they mm. developed this bromantane to um, help, you know, um, basically treat neurasthenia, which is like mental weakness, fatigue, weakness of the mind. Really? Um, yeah. And, and bromantane is phenomenal because it actually, it does what I was mentioning before is that yes, you can take tyrosine, but bromantane, upregulates it literally hijacks the tyrosine hydroxylase enzyme and upregulates the mRNA expression by like two to threefold in specific parts of the brain. So you're getting a long-term sustainable increase in dopamine without any form of um, tolerance, habituation, or withdrawal. Um, wow. Yeah, it's a it's honestly it's a phenomenal if you look at like even some of the other um, effects that it has they did one uh, study in like, I think it was like 78 um, humans. Like obviously it wasn't rats, it was in humans. Um, and the benefits were so strong that even three months after cessation of the actual administration of the compound, a lot of the benefits actually remained. Um, you know, th that's what we're looking for. We're looking for things that can actually um, lead to a sustained increase in cognition and that's that can be done with bromantine, um, you know, without any sort of untoward side effects. And at, at the same time, bromantine also has like GABA tr uh, GABA transaminase inhibition, so it also inhibits the enzyme that degrades GABA. So you're getting oh. an anxiolytic effect plus a motivation sort of alertness right. drive effect. Yeah, for the listeners, ang anxiolytic is like reduction of anxiety. So because it's it's GABA is the, the neurotransmitter that tends to slow us down, calm us down, make us feel uh, at ease. And uh, if that's not uh, being produced correctly or being broken down too quickly, you can get anxious and still feel overstimulated. Um, that's awesome. So the way I just want to kind of bring this back one, one second for the listeners to understand um, the way that I frame that I think most people should frame. And I think you'll agree with this uh, understanding neurotransmitters is kind of how we're going through it, right? We're going through it chunk by chunk. We're going, okay, we're talking about acetylcholine. Then maybe we'll talk about dopamine. And then we'll talk a little bit about serotonin. Then we'll talk about GABA and we'll just understand how each one works mechanistically. So a lot of times people look at these neurotransmitters and they don't understand what's actually happening in the brain. I think it's very important to go, hey, this is the pathway that's getting pushed. This is the pathway that we're repressing. And uh, when I push this pathway, I feel this way, right? And so rather than just going, hey, just take a bunch of crap because somebody put it into a product, you want to understand at some level systematically, or, or uh, I guess that's the right word, um, exactly what's happening. So we've gone through acetylcholine. We've kind of touched all the points there. We talked about acetylcholine esterase and all the the, the good acetylcholine um, products. Do you have any preference as to which one? You mentioned a bunch of them. Is there any one that stands <clears> out to you as kind of being the most efficacious? I think um, you can't really go wrong with CDP choline. Although alpha GPC has the best bioavailability, I think CDP choline, just generally speaking, from what I've observed across you know various forums and things like that, is that um, most people tend to get a good response from CDP choline, and that may be due to the fact that it um, also gets converted down into my favorite nootropic, um, uridine. And uridine is like 
man, that one there is a, is a goldmine in terms of um, improving uh, phospholipid uh, synthesis and hmm. uh, memory and things like that. So I think can't really go wrong with CDP choline. Well, let's go there. So uridine is one that I'm familiar with, but not massively familiar with. I'd love to explore that. Oh, for sure. So actually, I'll give you a bit of a backstory. Uridine actually, it changed my, it literally changed my brain. And I'm saying this wow. from a, uh, you know, it, it changed the way I approached work. Wow. Like, yeah. And I'm, 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 t- I'm saying this because it, it was so dramatic that it just made getting work done so easy. It was mm-hmm. the, it just completely blocked the ability to procrastinate. So there's a task at hand and with uridine, it was always like, I'm just going to crush it. Like, wow. it, yeah, it really helps with that motivation. And it's, it's, it's well known as part of the Mr. Happy stack. There's like a famous <laughs> Mr. No, I've heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> There's like a famous Mr. Happy stack that works on um, upregulating dopamine receptors. And okay. uridine is a heavy component with DHA, EPA, and B vitamins. Um, but yeah, uridine basically it upregulates, you know, dopamine D2 receptors in the striatum, um, which therefore leads to um, improvements in motivation, goal oriented behaviors, like mm. wanting to seek out and achieve a goal. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's awesome, man. Well, um, so supplemental only, or is there actually dietary sources of uridine? So, some of the dietary sources are brewer's yeast um, that contains quite a sufficient amount of um, uridine, and then also beer. Beer actually raises. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> Just <kidding. laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. Um, and then also breast milk. Huh. So, again, yeah. <laughs> I think our our audience is going to be. Uh, having some new unique habits. Yeah. Um, very cool. Now, what doses would you suggest that at, Lucas? So this is really important is that um, with uridine, less is more. It has an inverted U response. So at higher doses, it will literally make you sleepy and sedated. So anything beyond like 400 to 500 milligrams will make you um, fatigued and, mm-hmm. and sleepy and induces deep sleep. But dosages around 50 to 150 milligrams orally um, will give you that stimulate stimulatory mental awakening effect. Very cool. Uh, so that's that's great to know. So um, I think that for the most part wraps up the dopamine pathway. So for the listeners, just to kind of give a quick summary, dopamine tends to be your pursuit pathway. So the motivation pathway, the uh, the desire to pursue things. It's not necessarily the achievement, but it's more about pursuit. And when you are pursuing things, typically you're moving toward a goal, you're going to get more dopamine. We can support that pathway and give your body a greater desire to uh, pursue. And that's uh, great, right? For people who want to accomplish, people who want to succeed, having a higher amount of motivation is great. Now, there's certainly a, uh, a limit to how hard and how much you want to push a dopamine pathway. So here's, here's, I don't know if you've seen this research. When I, when I was probably 24, 25, some research came out that had athletes doing 10 grams of tyrosine and that's where they saw a very significant <clears throat> performance benefit. So, you know, Bang goes, sure, I can do that. So I did five grams. I didn't do 10. And it was the most amazing workout I've ever had in my life. But as soon as it was done, I had like the worst anxiety. It almost like felt like a panic attack that I've ever had in my life. And I was like, what the hell is happening to me? Um, so I highly suggest people don't <laughs> experiment with high dose tyrosine because it works temporarily. But if you don't understand how to, how to come down afterwards and how to kind of how to apply the brakes, um, that was my experience. Any any kind of um, words to the wise out there for as far as um, overdosing on any, any dopamine precursors? 
Yeah, uh, I think the key point to understand here is that anytime we ramp up the dopamine pathway, it's usually inevitable that we're also going to see a concomitant rise in norepinephrine and adrenaline. Because if we look at the the full spectrum down downwards pathway, it's going to eventually go down to norepinephrine and uh, noradrenaline. And, and adrenaline. So I think um, one key point there, though, and this is what I obviously I was delving into. Well, okay, I want to get a sustained increase in dopamine, but how can I block? Is there an ability to block that conversion? And it turns out there is a way. Um, using the amino acid, uh, the conditionally essential amino, uh, amino acid L-carnosine, um, which is um, it, it's sort of a it's a dipeptide that beta alanine actually contributes to. Um, so if you actually stack like beta alanine, like a big dose of beta alanine with tyrosine, you might notice that you'll get the you'll still get the dopaminergic buzz, but you'll also see a potential drop off in the in the norepinephrine and adrenaline. Um, effects. Interesting. And, and so uh, hearing, curious to hear your, your thoughts on this. So for me, um, someone who has a comp T mutation, so I don't uh, recycle catecholamines very well. Um, if I don't make sure that I'm getting enough, um, that I'm getting enough methylated vitamins, methylation support, whether it be betaine or um, SAMe or things like this, uh, I definitely notice a negative effect. And as soon as I get enough methylated vitamins or SAMI or betaine, uh, I notice that I come down really, really fine. And it's a nice smooth transition down. So again, this is a very genetic predominant thing. Like some people are going to get really bad effects. Some people could get no effects. Um, but is that something that uh, makes sense in your mind as far as like recycling the catecholamines? Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime we sort of um, increase in that methylation pathway, we're going to actually soak up a lot of the um, excess catecholamines like the norepinephrine, and that would explain why you were able to tolerate it. I think another angle that you can come at it from is if you want to get that um, dopamine buzz from the tyrosine without the anxiety, um, then simply also addressing the GABA pathway, like ramping up that GABA production, that's just going to offset the you know excitatory neurotransmission. So that's another way of going about it as well. Perfect. That's a perfect segue into where I want to go next. So let's talk GABA because when you when you understand uh, dopamine, it's very important that you start to understand GABA. Yeah. So with with GABA, um, the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter, um, best way for your audience to understand it maybe is like um, alcohol's primary effects is through agonizing or binding to one of the um, GABA receptors, the GABA-A receptors, um, and other drugs that are known to bind to this is like Valium and um, Xanax and other benzodiazepines. Now, the unfortunate reality with you know compounds like those is that with constant agonism and we're constantly binding to that receptor, over time, it's going to eventually down-regulate. So we're getting a down-regulation in the GABA-A receptors, which leads to... Um, a rebound sort of anxiety effect that we can get from some of those compounds. So with GABA, in terms of like a sustainable way to increase its production, you're looking at compounds like taurine, um, L-theanine, um, another herbal supplement, uh, gastrodin, um, magnolia bark. Like there's various ways that we can um, increase uh, GABA-A receptors and also GABA tone. Um, that I think are, you know, very versatile. Um, any experience with Fenibut? Um, so Fenibut so, in America wasn't, it was, you could get it, but you can't get it anymore. I think in Australia, it's kind of it's shifty, right? 
Oh, it's scheduled, yeah, for sure. Um, oh, really? Yeah. So if anybody, I was, I mean, I was just really well versed in terms of its pharmacokinetics, and I just stayed well away, just knowing, okay. knowing, knowing that it agonizes the GABA B receptors. I was like, it's just too risky for a, um, you know. So tell me about nothing. that. I don't know what's so diff- can you differentiate between GABA A and GABA B. So. Generally speaking, when we agonize the GABA B receptors, that actually leads to dopamine release in a part of the brain that can be um, habituating and um, addictive. So, like, that's the difference. Whereas, like, when we agonize the GABA A receptors, it's not as um, reinforcing and like habituating. So, unfortunately, with the Feniba, it's potent activity at that receptor. Um, People see a, a um, if they use it, you know, more than twice a week or so, um, it can become habit forming and, and you know it can become almost addictive. So, um, yeah, I think that's it's a compound to use sparingly. Of if you're going to use it, maybe you use it if you're going out um, to you know to a party or whatever, and you need that social lubrication. That's where I think Fennybot can really shine. So, meaning just to kind of bring down <laughs> the level of anxiety. Yeah, just reducing one's um, feeling stuck in their own head. Like, just mm. that is the one thing that often, you know, reduces one's um, pleasure, like, experience is just they're too stuck in their own head when they're going out. When they, the time when they really need to be outgoing, sarcastic, funny, just in the flow state, um, that's, the, that's the one time you don't want to be stuck in your own head, you know? Right. Interesting. That's a good thought. I, uh, so my um, experience with it has always just been if I'm uh, getting to bed late and I know I've trained late or I'm really stimulated, I'm like, okay, I want to throw some Fenibut in there, stimulate that GABA pathway to really kind of calm me down. If I feel overstimulated and I know I'm trying to get to bed, I'll kind of keep that in the medicine cabinet just in case. Um, but I've never thought of it as like a social anxiety. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I've just never kind of used it in that, in that uh, method. Yeah. I mean, another another alternative I forgot to mention is um, Carver. Have yeah. You- yeah, yeah. So I often work at a cava bar, and like, man, people are people love this stuff. It tastes like dirt, but people just seem to love it. Yeah, I mean, from a naturopathic perspective, um, it's probably our um, strongest hitting tool from like an anxiolytic perspective. Really? Um, yeah, because it does have the reverse tolerance, which is unique. Usually, compounds have usually compounds build tolerance. The more you take it, the less sensitive you you become. Mm-hmm. Whereas with cava. It potentially has reverse tolerance, which means the more you take it, the stronger the effects, right. which is yeah. Um, unique. Yeah, that's great. So that works on the GABA A pathway then? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Kava does a really great job at actually upregulating the GABA A receptors at the same time. So you're getting a sustained anxiolytic effect um, the more you use it. Oh, so interesting. Um, okay, that's good to know. So I'm always, I'm a, I'm a, I wouldn't say I'm an early adopter on these things. I'm always like, let everyone else try it and see what, what messes up and then I'll jump in. But when I hear things like that, that makes me curious. And I'm not someone who tends to be anxious by nature, but um, I think it's good to know, uh, certainly for clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and also like taurine as well. Um, taurine does a really great job, like broad spectrum as well. Like you've probably seen all the other benefits outside of the brain that taurine has as well. Yeah. So let's talk about taurine because Dr. Huberman actually says uh, he intentionally stays away from, from taurine. I forget. I'll recall perhaps when you're speaking, but I don't recall his, um, his reasoning, but he said there's one, Oh, you know what I was, it was eye health. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's eye health. And um, but he says, like, it's apparently really bad for your eyes. Again, I see huge performance benefits, certainly for calming. When I was training uh, as a professional bodybuilder, the only thing that would bring me down after a really hard late day leg workout was five grams of taurine. It's a lot, but like that would just like slow me right down. If I was overstimulated, I'd be like, this is the only thing that brings me into the really calm state. So let's talk a little bit of taurine. For sure. I mean, I did a um, I did a thirty minute long um, YouTube video talking about the benefits of taurine, so wow. it's it's nice and fresh in my head. Um, so, I mean, let's start with let's start with the brain, and we'll work our way down to the various organs. So, like, taurine um, has an ability to reduce glutamate activity. So that's um, the main excitatory sort of neurotransmitter that can, is associated with neurotoxicity when mm-hmm. in excess. Um, so it has an ability to inhibit um uh, so sorry increase glutamate decarboxylase which is the enzyme that converts glutamate into gaba so that's one benefit there then taurine also has been shown to increase the mrna expression of gaba a receptors so we're seeing a, a long-term increase in gaba a function over time uh, and then it also has been shown to like it also lowers cortisol as well. So, and the other unique benefit is that it may actually increase oxytocin in mm. the brain. Um, what dose are these typically done at, Lucas? Uh, between a thousand to three thousand milligrams. Um, yeah, human equivalent dosage. Um, and you'll see like majority of people respond really well to, you know, one point five grams to to three. I take three grams literally every day. Um, yeah, in the evening. Guess. What's what's your timing on that? Funnily enough, I I can I can get away with using it in the morning. It doesn't it doesn't have a sedating action on my brain, which is weird. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm using it not not only for its anxiolytic actions, but also its um ability to control liver enzymes. You know, ALT, AST. Um, it helps with bile production, which is so important for fat breakdown and um, fat absorption. And then it, um, it, it also, it's, you know, kidney protective, you know, um, liver protective, improves cardiovascular functions, osmolytic, like just so many benefits. So many benefits. Now, did you see the, the data on the eye health in your, in your travels? So was that the side effect that Huberman? Yep. Yep. You said it's, it's um, potentially could cause um, some eye issues. I mean, the only research I've seen is that it has protective effects on retinopathy. Like, I haven't seen anything untoward in terms of, um, was he talking about floaters? Does it increase floaters? I don't think so. I don't think it was. I don't know that he said, but I think he just said something to do with eye health. Right. Okay. Worth looking into and, you know, depending if someone's predisposed to that. So awesome. So that's a lot of information on the GABA system. And I think people will will come away with this, a good understanding of GABA. Um, so you mentioned in there glutamate, and I think we should definitely uh, spend a little bit of time on glutamate. Yeah. So I mentioned that glutamate, when in excess, um, can cause neurotoxicity and excitotoxicity, which means um, it can literally um, destroy neurons in the brain. But I think one key point to stress here is that glutamate is actually incredibly important for um, long-term memory and long-term potentiation so the ability to actually form memories so in states where someone has low glutamate their ability to um from acquisition to um uh, the retention so acquisition learning and retention phase is actually hindered 
So I think with glutamate, it's definitely a neurotransmitter that needs to be, um, you know, it's also considered when, when it comes to um, improving learning and memory. And so like the classic nootropic that works on um, the glutamate system is actually one called Nupept. Um, Very which, familiar. Yep. Yeah. So, so Nupep is one when I speak of things that work really well when I'm doing it, but make me feel like my brain's broken when, I, when, it's, when it goes away. Like, yeah. I've, I mean, I haven't done it that many times because I did feel like, gosh, it feels like my brain just slowed right down. And I wonder if that's because of the differential, like I felt so elevated and then it crashed or was it because, you know, ultimately maybe it's, it does something in my brain that I'm not familiar with. Do you know mechanistically what's going on there? I don't know, man, but I also got the exact same response. Yeah. Like it just made me feel like a zombie sort of robotic after, you know, yeah. just it was horrible. So yeah. I stayed, stayed well away from Nupept. I suggest the same to everybody. There's so many other things that you can experiment with that work just like amazingly well. So Nupep, I'll admit, has great benefits while you're on it. Um, I have no idea if it's habituating, but I definitely don't want to be attached to doing something all the time. And uh, it just didn't feel right. So moved along from there. Um, all right. So that's interesting. Any, any amino acid mentions that you want to make uh, with respect to, to kind of supporting glutamate? Yeah, the most obvious one here would be glutamine. Um, glutamine can go down the pathway of either GABA or glutamate, um, provided that one has adequate B6. So without adequate B6, oftentimes we'll see the glutamine going down the glutamate pathway. And that's why some people get an actual, like an excitatory response from glutamine supplements. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I used to get that during my career is uh, <clears throat> like almost anxious from taking glutamine. I'm like, this is weird. So yeah. as soon as, you're right. As soon as I start taking B vitamins, wiped it out. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's like, that's like the main one. And then, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Good. And so, uh, moving along to serotonin, I think serotonin is one that obviously we need to, to cover at length. People, people hear a lot about it. You know, we hear so much about it being produced in the gut. And now, now we're seeing that maybe uh, a different, uh, type of serotonin or it doesn't actually get into the brain, but I'd love to have you kind of decode all of that for us. Yeah. Um, and this is an area that I'd love to, you know, hopefully have a chat with Huberman about eventually um, to explore the various um, serotonin receptors and specifically breaking down the fact that there's 14 different serotonin receptors, different subtypes. Now they all have very different effects on the body. For example, we know that the 5-HT2A receptor, which is the receptor that you know psilocybin um, agonizes and downregulates, cordyceps mushroom also um, agonizes that receptor, um, and LSD also agonizes and activates the 2A receptor, and you know is associated with the pro-hallucinogenic effects. But there's also you know the other um, serotonin receptor, 5-HT1A receptor. That's sort of like the gatekeeper. So like there's a particular 5-HT1A autoreceptor, which many SSRIs and many drugs and antidepressants actually end up desensitizing, which means that it's like the, if, if, if you're rubbing out the gatekeeper, then you're going to get a, a flooding effect of serotonin. So you're going to get a sustained elevation in serotonin. Now, the consequences of elevated serotonin um, – you know, it's very far reaching. So we get a blunting of pleasure response, which is like anhedonia. So like those that have elevated serotonin oftentimes have um, anhedonia with the inability to experience pleasure. And then they also experience um, poor ability to cope with stress. 
Now, I mentioned before how serotonin works alongside prolactin um, and cortisol as well. And that's because, you know, one of those serotonin receptors, that 2A receptor, when we agonize that, that actually leads to an increase in ACTH, vasopressin, and cortisol. So, like, these serotonin receptors, they definitely need to be um, broken down into its um, their respective uh, functions as well. Very, very interesting. So typically when we hear of uh, serotonin, most people think of a sense of calm, a sense of um, community. So like, uh, you know, what belonging um, and I, most people have a positive association. And so I'd love to maybe discuss that side of it, but because it sounds like you're also bringing up the, the, the potential downsides. Well, absolutely. I think um, the key point to another key point to understand is that we sort of mentioned, you mentioned before how a majority of the, the serotonin is producing our gut. But if you look at anything that irritates the gut, guess these enterocytes end up releasing serotonin. Hmm. So if you look at the anti-nausea drugs and anti-nausea herbs like ginger um, or other anti-nausea medications, well, they work by antagonizing serotonin. So how does it make sense that the more serotonin that's released in the gut how is that conducive to a positive mood? You know, that's, that's maybe the like, question. So the, the argument you'll hear is like calming of anxiety. But so obviously we spoke about the GABA benefits of, of the anxiolytic benefits of GABA. Is it not the same for serotonin? It's not. And, and the thing is, uh, it's actually positively associated with learned helplessness. So mm. that, and that behavior is when someone feels stuck and trapped. And if you think about, I've got nothing against like big pharma, but SSRI medications, part of its actual um, ability to work is by actually making someone obey and compliant. Mm. Like that, it suppresses their creativity, suppresses their um, um, expansive thinking, and makes them more compliant and and um, just follow the norm. Don't question things; just follow the norm, sort of thing. Interesting. Um, so, so talk about some of the, the negative habits that would drive serotonin up. So we talked about maybe stress, talked about some, some foods. And so I want to specific to the gut because my brain goes to like how many people out there are eating things that are probably irritating to their gut and therefore driving up serotonin and creating these complacent behaviors. Yeah. So we have obviously the, the gut irritation um, being one. Um, even having a shortage of certain B vitamins can raise serotonin. When the reason why I was so fascinated with vitamin B1 was because it was shown that in a, in a B1 deficient state, there was an increase in serotonin in, in one particular part of the brain. It, it inhibited, it sort of affected um, the reuptake of serotonin. So I was like, why is that? How is that occurring there? So then, you know, dive deeper into um, sort of other elements that may raise serotonin. Um, and, you know, we have the stress, like you mentioned, um, caffeine, debatable around its effects on serotonin. Caffeine primarily actually works on, um, uh, you know, increasing the, the catecholamines and dopamine, things like that. Right. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, very, it's a very complex, complex discussion. Cool. Yeah, well, so we'll see if we can get uh, Huberman to do a podcast on it. I'll see if I can connect you guys. Yeah, that'd be sick. Um, okay, so moving along, there's a lot of uh, uh, nootropics that I want to cover that we haven't that 
know, are hugely valuable. And I think our audience really benefit. Is there any particular ones that we haven't mentioned that you'd like to start with? Absolutely. I'd love to talk about an up and coming, what I consider to be, I spoke about this on Ben Greenfields, but I'm going to mention it here, is the ayahuasca inspired nootropic, which is, um, uh, so basically it's called 9-MBC. So it's 9-methyl-beta-carbaline. Um, and this is a very new one. I don't, I don't think the nootropics experts spoken about it yet. But, um, so it's 9-MBC? Yeah, 9-MBC, 9-methyl-beta-carbaline. Now, 9-MBC is honestly, from the initial like beta testers, from those that have abused Ritalin, abused Adderall, abused cocaine, other stimulants, they've used 9-MBC to regenerate dopamine neuron loss. And if you look at, if you look at the, um, the research on 9-MBC, its original research papers were tailored towards Parkinson's because we know that Parkinson's disease is a, is a loss of dopamine. Yep. Um, and 9-MBC was the only alkaloid that displayed neuroprotective, neuroregenerative, and neuro-restorative like, effects in the brain. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, a very unique compound. Oh, that's wonderful. And that's accessible? Is that available or is that? Yeah. Oh, that's good to know. It is. It is. Um, yeah, I mean, I did a... I did a very lengthy video on YouTube explaining the pharmacokinetics and, and pharmacology around it. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes and I'll, I'll send people there for sure. Yeah, sweet. Um, awesome. So one class of uh, nootropics that I want to make sure we don't gloss over is um, racetams. So phenyl, phenyl racetam, uh, paracetam, aniracetam, oxyracetam. Uh, have, do you have any experience with those? Do you have any um, familiarity with the research? Yeah. So um the racetam family really is like the um, the original original nootropics um, discovered by a Romanian chemist, um, Corneliu Georgia, um, and the majority of the research was conducted on their ability to meet certain criteria. So, like they had to be um, neuroprotective, they had to enhance learning and memory, they had to. Uh, protect the brain from um, chemical or physical stresses. So there was, and they had to, they also had to lack the typical side effects of various um, psychostimulants. So the Rastam family, as you mentioned, there's a whole, there's a, there's a whole array of different Rastatams. You've got Paracetam is the original. Um, then you've got Phasoracetam, Aniracetam, Coloracetam, Oxyracetam, Phenylparacetam, banned by water. Um, and fontiracetam. So, yeah, really, there's just there's there's a whole variety. And so, general opinion, <clears throat> son of opinion, if if your opinion is with me, you want to share, or based on the data, it sounds like all those criteria would be amazing. Do they all meet that criteria? And is there any negative effects? Great question. Um, so, with uh, paracetam, absolutely ticks all the boxes. Um, it, that's like the original, the one that most people don't really see many side effects from. Um, I personally, you know, I dabbled with them very early on, but unfortunately I never responded well to them. They always seem to give me like this weird dull head pressure, headache feeling. Um, so I got I the same thing. I got the same thing. And then I pushed up my choline a little bit, went away. So maybe, maybe a hack. Yeah. I looked into, yeah, obviously if it was depleting choline, but, um, I think the one that 
people are most attracted to is the phenyl paracetam, which is the um, the one that helps people combat um, hypoxia. And it was used by, you know, Russians to improve um, skiing performance, altitude, you know, um, withstanding um, physical stress. So I think that's a really unique compound. Interesting. I didn't know that benefit. So specifically only that ester has that benefit. Yeah. And that's the reason why it's um, banned banned by water. Interesting. So I've uh, played with aniracetam, I've played with oxyracetam, both of them, it feels different. I couldn't objectively tell you what, what is different about them. They do feel a little bit different. Uh, I did see a huge benefit from aniracetam. I loved it. Uh, I did it pretty consistently, I don't know about daily, but probably three or four times a week for six months and then stopped. And uh, I saw a huge benefit. I think I, I kept and sustained most of the benefits I got. So improved focus, improved memory retention, um, yeah, just overall a good experience but i'm always super cautious of like don't do this for too long because we don't know yeah. what the negative effects are yeah so yeah exactly yeah, as far as pathways any um any guidance there on what that do we know what that's doing any racetam um it's increasing acetylcholine uh, production it, it definitely activates the glutamate uh, amp ampa receptors it's really complex like <laughs> it's a particular um glutamate subglutamate um receptor um and potentially activating one of the serotonin receptors as well but we don't we really don't know a whole lot about antiracetam um we know more about bromantine the one that i mentioned before and, and also um 9mbc but i think if it works if it works for you in terms of like creativity it's probably one you want to use maybe once or twice a week and just use it sparingly yeah, interesting um so coming back, there's, there's some foundational things that I think we should discuss. And one one supplement that will come up often is uh, Bacopa Monieri. And I'm curious if you have any um, any opinions, any research, any feedback. Yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought this up. Um, so Bacopa Monieri, um, majority of its research really shines when it's used chronically. So it needs to be used for like eight to 12 weeks to truly right. exert the memory enhancing effects. Unfortunately, Bacopa is associated with a few side effects that I think people should be aware of. Usually, Bacopa makes people feel lazy and um, sleepy. So, like, that's the two side effects that, as if anyone's going to want to take a nootropy that makes them feel lazy and sleepy. So, I think Bacopa is probably one if you really are worried about memory performance, maybe it's best to use before bed. Hmm. to you know improve synaptic plasticity overnight interesting um one that uh i see i'm sure greenfield and i don't know if you guys talked about this but he's a he's a big advocate of nicotine and some of the smartest people i know in the entire world are, are pushing nicotine hard and i'm just like interesting what you know what is the reason why literally i think five of the 10 smartest humans i've ever met push nicotine uh, at relatively high <laughs> levels <laughs> i'm curious what your feedback is on that yeah, um, it's funny because um, Dave Asprey, I think he just posted a video like two days ago why he takes nicotine. Dude, he um, takes nicotine constantly. He's, always, he's got a spray. Every five minutes, he sprayed in his mouth. Look, my my stance on nicotine is I, I don't see it as a as a um, sustainable nootropic because I, I know I'm, I'm too aware of the potential drawbacks. Um, it's vasoconstrictive nature. It's not good long-term for cardiovascular function. Um, 
So do we know that? Do we know nicotine specifically is has a vasoconstrictive? Because like I think people always want to delineate between like, hey, this is nicotine versus this is tobacco, which is obviously a very different effect. So it's specific to nicotine is vasoconstrictive. Yeah, yeah, nicotine yeah. is it does like like caffeine. It's an alkaloid, so it does have that effect. Um, but I think it's important to uh, emphasize the addictive and reinforcing component of nicotine um, and the fact that if you don't have it. Where are you at? Like, where's your baseline at? That's the problem I find with nicotine is that, yes, it's going to bump you up. And without a doubt, there is, you know, massive amounts of research on nicotine improving learning, improving memory, improving executive functioning. But my question is at what cost? Like, if we don't have nicotine, how is our brain functioning without it? That That's, that's my question, you know? Yeah. So, um, you know, I've used nicotine uh, sporadically, we'll say, you know, maybe one to two milligrams a day, one time a day. And uh, I do see a benefit. I do see a focus benefit. One thing I like about it, and I'm not sure if this is a good idea, it's one of those things when it's like 6 p.m. and you're, you're feeling a little tired, but you got some work to do, you got something to do. Nicotine seems for me to have uh, an uplifting effect without keeping me awake. So if I were to do coffee at 6 p.m., I wouldn't sleep and my sleep would be terrible. Nicotine seems to be relatively... Um, you know, useful without negatively impacting my sleep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because um, the, the half-life of nicotine is, you know, very short yeah. compared to caffeine. Um, one of its metabolites though, uh, cotinine, that has like a 12 to 24-hour half-life. Um, and actually a lot of the benefits of nicotine actually come from its metabolite, cotinine. So people are actually, um, people are actually experimenting with cotinine Hmm. as a as a individual nootropic as well which is cool to play around with interesting so one of the nootropics that i talk about a lot around if it's it's classified as nootropic maybe it is is lion's mane any um any opinions any uh, facts so uh, lion's mane um very well versed for improving um, nerve growth factor in the brain um one key caveat there is that um, people that are histamine sensitive or have histamine issues a nerve growth factor actually activates mast cells. So people can get a, um, that's not, not usually discussed, but increasing nerve growth factor can increase um, mast cell activation and histamine release. So uh, I don't know if you've seen, if, you, if you've ever seen that with nope. clients or anything. Nope. So what, what would it actually express? Uh, mast cell growth. Uh, potentially increase allergic symptoms or um, increased, it's unlikely. No. Um, that's probably an in vitro study, but I, I think, um, yeah, lion's mane, again, similar to Bacopa in that sense, that it's going to have that improvement in long-term um, long memory function. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. All right, Lucas, we kept with you for a lot of time. I want to kind of summarize if there's anything else you think that absolutely the, the, the listener must know about when it comes to um, nootropics. Final point I'd love to add is um, just gain awareness before you even start with any of the compounds. Like, like you said before, I think people that want to get into nootropics, they need to really understand their, their baseline and where they're at and try not to fall, fall into the trap of trialing comp uh, products that have multiple ingredients because you just don't know how you're going to respond to each isolated compound. And what, so what I recognize that you recognize this now being an expert at this stuff is like most people who design a product are not experts at nootropics. <laughs> They're like, Hey, that one works. That one works. That works. Let's put them all together. 
And that's just not a good approach. So you're absolutely right. I advocate almost never taking these products that are just kitchen sink products. Like, hey, throw a bunch of crap in there and see if it works. Yeah, it feels great. Let's keep going. But there's no data on how all these things integrate together. And a simple summary for the audience, um, you know, we have basically five subsections that we went through today. So we went through, start with acetylcholine, dopamine, glutamate, GABA, and serotonin. We went through all of those kind of subdomains and how they each worked and uh, how they maybe sometimes work antagonistically to each other. And uh, understanding that is very, very important. And I would love for you to tell us where people can learn more about you, specifically maybe your YouTube, maybe your, your podcast, and because it sounds like you're putting out some amazing information. Yeah, yeah. So um, people want to check out my YouTube channel. It's Boost Your Biology. Um, got some really you know, useful content there for those that are looking into uh, nootropics. And then my Instagram, ergogenic underscore health. Um, and then also my website. Check out my website. I've got some um, awesome just heaps of content. My mission really is to just, you know, be, be a mini Huberman, you know, like I'd love to follow his footsteps and, and Ben Greenfield as well. So yeah. Yeah. Huberman is certainly one of the greatest <clears throat> teachers I've ever encountered his ability to articulate uh, complex things and make them uh, at least digestible is a second to none. So listeners, if you haven't checked out the Huberman lab podcast, do so. And also check out Lucas Owen's podcast. Thank you so much for being here, man. That was actually fantastic. I'm super grateful we were able to do this. Awesome. Thanks, Beepak. Thanks, buddy. That is a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you very much for joining the Muslim Intelligence Podcast. We do our best to scour the entire planet to bring you the world's greatest humans. I have some attachment, maybe. I have some kinship to people who are doing things at a level that have never been for, before been done by humans. I love people who take a mentality of, yeah, I've achieved it, and now the hard work begins. And that's really the framing of how I choose my guests. I'm always looking for people who are maybe thinking a little bit differently, maybe thinking a little bit outside the box, maybe pushing the barriers and pushing the frontiers of what is possible for our minds, for our bodies, and ultimately for our species. That's what really, really excites me and drives this podcast forward. So if you have any recommendations on guests, feel free to reach out. I hope you continue to love all the guests we bring and continue to love all the solo casts that we've been putting out. Today's podcast is made possible by UCAN. UCAN Superstarch is an incredible supplement that I suggest you all head over to try. Add about 30 to 60 grams into your intra-workout shake or intra-workout beverage, potentially adding some amino acids or creatine or citrulline, anything like that. It's a perfect complement to other current pre-workout, sorry, intro workouts. So for someone who already takes an intro workout, this is something you might want to add to it to help improve performance in a different pathway. Oftentimes, typical intro workouts um, support things like uh, adrenaline. So they're going to give you some caffeine or uh, any type of other energetic pathways, not often supporting the carbohydrate metabolism. So head over to youcan.co, U-C-A-N.co slash muscle intelligence and use the code MUSCLE to get hooked up with 20% off. Thank you guys for tuning in the podcast. I truly appreciate it. I truly appreciate you giving us your time, your attention, and your trust. And the feedback keeps rolling in. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate when people take the time to write really kind messages, whether it be through Instagram or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or YouTube or wherever it happens to come through to us is um, really massively appreciated. And I always appreciate it. If you're the type of person who, who loves to help other people share this podcast with at least one person you know and love would benefit from the podcast. Thank you guys. And we'll see you soon again on another amazing episode of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.